Will the Taliban be willing to make concessions on the area of women's rights, human rights, minority rights? It is the week of August 30th, and welcome to episode 95 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we'll be continuing NSI's deep dive on Afghanistan with Ryan Brown, former CNN correspondent at the Pentagon, who spent three years on the ground in Afghanistan. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Ryan, you were on the pod last week when we had the the group discussion, but we didn't really get a chance to kind of know your background. Can you, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, talk about your experience in Afghanistan? What were you doing there? What brought you there? What did you see? Anything that you think is relevant for this conversation going forward? Sure. Yeah, no, I I spent several years there, uh, as you said, uh, 2011, 12, and 13. And how I got there was, so I actually was working in the think tank world in Washington and uh, doing a lot of reviews of NATO strategy in Afghanistan. And we were doing a lot of papers and a lot of fact-finding stuff. And, you know, and but again, you're doing it from mostly in a cubicle in Washington. And, and, and through that experience, I got to know... Uh, the, the folks at NATO, uh, particularly some of the military leadership, and uh, would express my interest in actually doing more over there. And and one of the the Supreme Allied Commander at the time, General Craddock, um, helped me uh, get a contractor position as, as an advisor to the Afghan National Army, uh, helping them develop their kind of professional military education system um, and kind of working with the Army for those years. And of course, that was the height of the surge. Uh, the Obama administration was kind of seeking to, you know, escalate and then kind of hand it over to the Afghans as much as possible. And really, that was the big drawdown. I mean, we kind of forget we went from 100,000 down to about 10,000 fairly quickly. And so that was kind of during that period. And so it was an interesting period to be there, uh, learned a lot. And then, of course, you know, once I went over to CNN for the last five years, uh, obviously, I got to go back a few times uh, traveling and covered it as much as I could. Uh, I know there's been a lot of criticism about media not paying attention until now. I I don't think that's true. I mean, we wrote about Afghanistan quite a lot. Uh, Whether or not people read what we were doing is a a different matter. Um, But uh, yeah, so uh, Afghanistan has been a big part of my professional life uh, to date. And um, so happy to always happy to talk about it, even under these current circumstances. Let's talk about what's going on the ground right now. And then as we go through the conversation, kind of pull back and think about some of the the bigger implications for uh, for Afghanistan, for the United States, and um, kind of geopolitics going forward. For the audience, uh, we're recording this on the afternoon of August 30th, the deadline for the pullout of U.S. troops uh, is in roughly 24 hours from now, uh, will be midnight August 31, and and official Americans will be out of Afghanistan. Uh, but, but Ryan, it seems like, as best we can tell now, that there's a very distinct possibility that some Americans, and indeed perhaps many Afghans who helped the U.S. effort in Afghanistan will be left there in country after the official U.S. departure uh, by tomorrow night. What does the future hold for those folks who who remain on the ground after we pull out? It's a great question. And I think one that has yet to have a a real um, substantive answer. I think from the official administration point of view, they've released some very, very optimistic statements about the Taliban's willingness to allow 
these people, both the American citizens, the, the green card holders, illegal permanent residents, which is actually a, a very under talked about group um, because the State Department doesn't have any uh, numbers on them that they've released and and have had a lot less success getting through the Taliban checkpoints to the airfield compared to the American citizens. Uh, and then, of course, the the special visa folks, the folks who worked with the U.S. military, and then other refugees who uh, are likely to face reprisals by the Taliban. Um, you know, what is to become of them? Well, the State Department says, you know, the Taliban have promised to allow them uh, to leave. Um, they've acknowledged that the airport is likely not to be functioning um, after the handover, although there has been some diplomatic discussions with Qatar and Turkey uh, and the Taliban, potentially they might try to have some kind of arrangement where they keep the airport running. Um, but they, you know, they, there was a statement signed by some 100 countries, uh, including the United States, saying like, look, we, the Taliban said they're going to let them travel. We, we're going to hold them to that. Name. What leverage they have to do that? Very unclear. Um, and so if the Taliban choose not to abide by those agreements or that, that, that kind of watered ple- watery pledge, uh, what will happen then? We don't know. We've already had multiple reports of the Taliban stopping people from leaving. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, will that get worse without a U.S. military presence and implied, you know, threat uh, leverage on the ground? I would say probably. Um, I think you're probably going to see more um, stories and reports of people having their movement restricted. Um, so, but I, I think it's a very big question. What, w- what will the United States do if that is the case? And I think that's very unclear because what leverage do they really have? So one of the things we, we learned in the last couple of days was that there was this effort by ex-American military, former Americans who were stationed in Afghanistan. They called themselves the Pineapple Express, which I believe is a reference to an otherwise obscure 2007 movie. Uh, they called themselves the Pineapple Express, organized a, a their own airlift of their allies in Afghanistan, the folks that they worked with when they were... Uh, you know, on in harm's way in Afghanistan and appear to have liberated uh, a good number of uh, Afghans who may not have otherwise made it out. Are we going to see more things like that happening in Afghanistan? I think so. Um, I've, I'll admit, uh, full disclosure, I've, I've been in contact and working with several groups uh, that are similarly attempting to affect a similar result. Um, and, you know, uh, with a wide range of people, right? Because you have the translators uh, and the green card holders, which are which are kind of the easiest, for lack of a better word, case, right? You know, these folks have their paperwork in order. Um, they should be allowed to get through. It's really just getting them out of the country is the, the hard part. Then you have a whole range of other folks that people worked with closely. You know, you see, especially in the special operations community, special forces community, they worked a lot with Afghan special forces. Um, and these are thousands of folks who with all with everything I've saw and everything I've heard fought very well alongside U S personnel for years on some of the most high risk missions. Um, and there is no real mechanism for getting them out, um, through the formal processes. And, uh, I think there is a lot of interest with this American special operations community to get those folks out and, and, you know, how to do that from afar. Uh, you know, I've seen WhatsApp groups that are basically a, turned into op cells, right? Telling people about routes and, 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 and reports of, of closures and openings and border crossings. And so that these kind of things are going to become increasingly important um, as the official American government effort 
uh, goes into this kind of virtual, uh, you know, rhetorical phase versus actually flying people out. If this is going to happen, it is going to require the engagement of uh, these folks um, to, to help get them out. If, the, if it is, if it is going to happen, it's probably going to be largely due to those efforts. Let's turn to the Afghans themselves. On, on the day after tomorrow, uh, U.S. forces presumably will be out of Afghanistan. Uh, our diplomats will be out. Our soldiers, Marines, airmen will be out. What does the Taliban face then? Presumably there's a lot less attention, not zero, but less attention being paid to events on the ground. How does the Taliban as a government function and go forward starting on Wednesday? What are their challenges? What are they worried about? How do they see their own future? Yeah, you know, it is a great question because it's the classic, you know, what does the dog do when it finally catches the car? Right. Like it is um, I don't think they anticipated uh, military success at the speed that they had it, uh, but they are left with myriad challenges. One, probably the most emergency challenge or critical challenge for them is financing the government. Um, the Afghanistan government was extremely reliant on foreign assistance, uh, upwards to 80 percent. Um not to mention the little that they were taking in was due to trade, uh, transit fees, border crossing fees. A lot of that has stopped as the instability. So their, their coffers are drying up fast. You've seen queues uh, for banks, people desperately trying to get their money out, um, paying the fees of civil servants. Uh, the Taliban has asked civil servants to keep working, uh, at least the males, um, the, the female civil servants uh, uh, face a little bit more of a questionable future. They've had mixed messages on whether they will allow them to continue. Uh, looks like in healthcare they will, but in other places less clear. Um, so how do you pay those folks? How do you, you know, do uh, basic uh, needs? Um, you know, the U.S. and others have said they will continue humanitarian assistance, but that is a very small pot of money in the grand scheme. Uh, other challenges they face, international recognition. Uh, some countries seem uh, keener to do it than others, um, but, you know, it's one of the few points of leverage uh, the West has over the Taliban. Will the Taliban be willing to make concessions on the area of women's rights, human rights, minority rights in, to achieve that? I think that's a question still to be determined. Uh, the Taliban is still dealing with a resistance movement. Um, remnants of the government military um, have kind of relocated to Panjshir province, which, of course, the Taliban never ruled. Uh, Ahmad Massoud's son is, is, has kind of taken up his banner. Um, you know, the Taliban enjoy military advantages over them, but if they want to seize it, they'll have to fight it out in a very difficult place. Um, so that's another point of challenge, uh, in addition to just providing basic security. And then, of course, the challenge that we've seen most acutely in recent days is the presence of ISIS. Um, ISIS-K, the Taliban has largely fought them for territorial control in the past. They are enemies. Um, there has been some lower level collaboration in cities that they've done in the past, according to the U.S. officials. But, you know, they are ostensibly enemies. Um, and as the Taliban seek international recognition, seek the, to do the realities of governing, any concessions they make, ISIS-K will be sitting there eagerly attempting to peel off Taliban hardliners to say, look, these guys are sellouts. Come join us. We're the real movement. And that's a challenge the Taliban will have to deal with. And it is a delicate balancing act and one that I doubt they're prepared for. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Well, they weren't able to do this before, right? They weren't able to, on the one hand, lock down their jihadist bona fides and then also deal with the international community in a responsible manner. And that's how we, you know, you know, it's kind of uh, 
30,000 foot view, but that's basically how we ended up with 9-11, with a, a nation state that wasn't really interested in being a nation state the way we understand it. Uh, what's your, you know, uh, what's your sense of the Taliban itself? You kind of alluded to the fact that some folks in the organization may peel off and, and join hard, uh, the hardliners if the main Taliban effort goes a little too moderate and is working with the international community. How resilient is the Taliban itself internally, or is it, we, we tend to talk about it here in Washington as, a, as if it's a monolith. Is it in fact riven by uh, different factions and, and lines of thought? What's your, what's your sense of their internal struggles? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think it's one that is, um, you know, has been a point of focus for the military and intelligence community here is, you know, what is the Taliban? How monolithic is it? Uh, you know, you see mixed signals, right? So uh, during the, the first ceasefire, um, the Taliban were able to kind of have that control over all these various uh, regional subgroups and get them to stop fighting for a brief period when they had that initial ceasefire several years ago. So they did have that kind of effective command and control uh, to to implement something like that. So you see, on one hand, they do have some powerful control over their fighters. Uh, on the other hand, you know there are immense. Afghanistan is a very regionalized place, and within the Taliban, you have major regional differences. You know the Helmandis. Uh, fought for a very long time with the international forces. Most analysts think that they're a little bit more belligerent, a little bit more um, unwilling to compromise, uh, uh, having you know, fought very aggressively uh, in, in very contested environments. Um, are they gonna be more likely to uh, oppose any kind of um, accommodation with the international community? That's one theory. Um, We've seen reports of Helmandis and Haqqanis, who are, again, considered a foreign terrorist group, despite uh, by the U.S. government officially, we see them having taking very prominent roles in Kabul um, as the kind of transitional security arrangements. So is that an indication that the Taliban are still trying to balance these competing forces, or is it an indication that the Taliban have allowed the most um, belligerent um, uh, entities to kind of rise to the top. Uh, we'll see how it plays out, you know. Um, but I, I do think kind of it will be interesting to see how they manage this kind of diverse coalition of, of, of regional power groups and also groups that are have different ideological goals um, and and how they uh, you know how they imp how they keep them together when the hard part of governing uh, you know fighting is something they can all agree on, but governing will lend itself to much more divergent views. So that kind of the acid test for America, right, is whether the Taliban is going to, assuming they maintain control of Afghanistan, whether they permit global terrorist groups, global jihadist groups, such as Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, to take up residence in Afghanistan and use Afghanistan as a uh, launching pad for attacks against the United States or the West. This is the question everyone is asking about the day after tomorrow. Is that is that something that could be happening in the future? What's what's your take? Well, it's interesting. Um, the probably the one tangible uh, part of the Trump administration's Doha deal um, with the Taliban, the one thing that you know you could point to and say this was a real concession by the Taliban, uh, the, at least in the public release, um, was 
this idea that the Taliban pledged to not allow Al Qaeda or any other international terrorist group to use Afghanistan as a base to strike out at the West. Um, a couple of complications with that. One, despite them making that as pledge, the Pentagon has consistently released public reports saying that there are Al-Qaeda present in Afghanistan. They work closely with the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban provide them safe haven. The Al-Qaeda elements help the Taliban with their military operations. That has not stopped. That reporting has not changed consistently until those reports, have pro- I assume, will stop being published now. Um, so there's no evidence to show that they took any action whatsoever against Al-Qaeda. Two, you had a recent senior Taliban leader give an interview, I think, with NBC, where he basically said, oh, Osama bin Laden had nothing to do with that. Um, we never had any evidence of that. that, that is, that's, that's a fake, a myth. So the fact that you can't even agree, um, I just think there's an inherent challenge to think that, oh, they're going to not allow Al-Qaeda to, to do this when their public statements are that, well, Al-Qaeda didn't do it before. So, you know, there, it, it's, it's just hard for me to understand uh, I, I guess people believe that it's in their interest to prevent Al-Qaeda from using it as a base, perhaps. But um, there's, again, we talked about the factionalization. Uh, it doesn't take much. You know, Al-Qaeda doesn't need the 20,000 training camp. Uh, you know, so any support of a state um, funneled to them, it, it's hard for me to imagine at least at some level, the Taliban not returning to or continuing its cooperative relationship with Al-Qaeda, um, giving them a real benefit, a real boost. So one of the issues that uh, faces the U.S. government going forward, and I'll ask you about the, the kind of the broader question in a second, but one of the, the real uh, kind of definitive narrow scoped questions is how, how does the U.S. treat assistance to the Afghan people in light of the fact that their country is basically run by a what we consider a terrorist organization. By the way, I think we're right, but we consider it a terrorist organization. Suddenly they're going to be running a nation state in uh, in the next few hours here. Uh, we have prohibitions on assistance to terrorist groups. The, the Treasury Department under President Biden has indicated that they're willing to give waivers to NGOs that are providing humanitarian assistance in Afghanistan. Uh, that, you know, as a humanitarian gesture, that seems sensible that we would want to continue to help people in need uh, of food, water, sanitation, those kinds of things. Is there, is there a downside to this decision to allow aid flows to individuals where it may, some of it may end up in the hands of the bad guys. Yeah, it is a, um, it's, it's a delicate balance. Uh, and I think they try to, one of the things they try to do is classify, you know, humanitarian assistance um, at a very narrowly uh, food, basic, you know, sustenance um, items versus any kind of development assistance, which, uh, is, is kind of a separate bucket. And I think for most people that seems confusing and, and, and hard to understand, but the government does try to kind of keep these, you know, create a, you know, dividing line between these two items. Uh, and usually humanitarian assistance is provided to a lot of re- regimes that we find repulsive. Uh, the U.S. government has long done that. Uh, development assistance, much less so. So I think one, they will try to probably as much as possible And I think this is why they're making this kind of ridiculous um, distinction between the Haqqani Network, which is a designated foreign terrorist organization, and the Taliban. Um, 
because if they did, they didn't do that. It, it would complicate. And I think you see a similar situation in Yemen with the Houthis. Um, there, there is some challenges, you know, humanitarian groups um, are allowed to work in Houthi controlled areas, even though, you know, many are, they used to be considered a terrorist group of the previous administration. So it is, it's something that we've done before. Um, yeah, there is risk. Look at the Taliban. There's a good chance the Taliban use it as to establish their legitimacy. Um, they use it to, uh, there's always the risk that they coerce NGOs and other humanitarian groups to, to be like, no, only give it to these people who we know are loyal to us and, you know, don't, and, you know, NGOs and humanitarian groups have some mechanisms for, working that out but it, it's a messy thing and and you know well i'm sure but it's it, yes i mean that they will definitely there are downsides to it um uh but it isn't too far of a departure from what policies have been to similarly repugnant uh regimes uh in the past so uh let's kind of expand the the scope of the question about how the u.s government deals with the government of Af- Afghanistan going forward beyond just humanitarian assistance. And let's hypothesize that uh, we get relatively good news out of Afghanistan. The Taliban consolidates control. It appears to be more you know, progressive or modern in its values than it was 20 years ago. Uh, there's, there's some kind of understanding of human rights that, that we can relate to in Afghanistan. Uh, I don't expect us to be Uh, you know, close partners with the Taliban government, but how far could we go plausibly in uh, playing a role in that country? There's going to be big questions about IMF, World Bank funding, Mm -hmm. uh, access to capital markets, that kind of thing, uh, various kinds of training the government will need if they want to play a constructive role in the international community. How, How far can we go under ideal circumstances? It's a great question. Uh, I think there is going to be uh, a lot of scrutiny, um, you know, on terms of what that relationship looks like, even if Taliban 2.0 is real and there is some, uh, and you, I think you said really the only leverage the United States has is, is the access to financial markets, some of the, the reserve, federal reserve holding on to some of their, you know, billions of dollars in, in assets uh, that have been frozen, IMF deals. Um, if the Taliban were to moderate to the to an extent, I think that will raise a very difficult question. Um, there's obviously a contingency in Congress, which is very against um, doing anything with the Taliban and you know controlling the purse strings and things like that nature. I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on uh, you know what that relationship is, and and particular bar will be set fairly high for for those kind of things. I, I think the other the the other issue, too, will be um, how do you verify some of these things, right? You know, Kabul is one thing, um, and uh, there are reports that the Taliban's doing one thing in Kabul and very different out in the other provincial capitals and, and the rural areas. Uh, that will be a question of, you know, are you just looking at what they're doing in Kabul or versus, you know, what they're doing wider? But, you know, areas where I think collaboration is much more likely, uh, I think, you're starting to see some advocate some kind of counterterrorism partnership uh, with the Taliban. And, and I think it was very interesting that the CIA director, um, Ambassador Burns, went out there and met with the Taliban leadership. I think, you know, that kind of intelligence focused security information exchange focused relationship that could there are people who think that could work. I, I'm much more skeptical uh, personally, um, but you know there are people who say, hey, "Hey, the Taliban fought 
uh, ISIS-K, um, you know, uh, we, ISIS-K has demonstrated an intent to attack uh, internationally. So you need some kind of relationship. And there was some de facto, some people hyped it up probably more than it was, but, you know, during the military effort, we would often strike ISIS fighters as they were fighting the Taliban and, and with airstrikes, and we wouldn't hit the Taliban, right? So there was some kind of de facto um, my enemy's enemy kind of thing is, is okay. Um, you know, again, does that get more robust? Does that get more sophisticated? Uh, hard to say. I think a lot of this will also be contingent on how much do the Taliban need the United States versus some of the other regional actors who are way less concerned about their human rights record, about their record with women's rights, about anything, um, minority rights. So I think, you know, will, will we have as much leverage as we think we do uh, or the Taliban to compel them to moderate, moderate. I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, again, you mentioned the IMF, like a lot of countries, they much rather take a no strings attached uh, financial arrangement from uh, Beijing or, or somebody else. So uh, it will be, it's a good question. Um, I think it will be difficult for the administration to do much given this domestic scrutiny from Congress. And I don't think the Taliban will have a lot of reasons to moderate. So um, thereby, making it a bigger challenge to do anything. All right, let's, uh, let's kind of pivot based on, you know, the end of your answer there and talk about these other actors in the region, the broader region, uh, particularly China and Pakistan. I think there's a, there's a sense here in Washington, Pakistan benefits from what's happening in Afghanistan. They've been sheltering Taliban forces for years. They've always kind of fomented, uh, instability in Afghanistan. This, in, in a lot of ways, they're the, the dog that caught the car here. What are the real implications for Pakistan? Is there any chance Pakistan is going to kind of regret the developments that we're seeing there now? And then more broadly, does, does China start to play a bigger role in Afghanistan to its benefit? Or does it see the, the costs as perhaps of, of dealing with a chaotic uh, fundamentalist-driven Afghanistan as being greater than the benefits of whatever mineral extraction and and that kind of thing it might be able to get out of the country. What's your how, how is this going to kind of this current situation going to overflow the borders of Afghanistan and affect those two countries? You know, it's a great question. Uh, Pakistan's a fascinating um, case study because, like you said, I mean. It's been an open secret for decades that they've uh, the ISI, the intelligence service in Pakistan, has has been aiding the Taliban. And you know, uh, Imran Khan, the prime minister, uh, basically gave them a valedictory speech uh, on the fall of Kabul, saying they'd broken their chains. You know, the Afghan people had. Bro- I mean, it was it was kind of bizarre um, in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, I. I <laughs> So as an analyst or a critical thinker, you look at Pakistan and go, oh, man, you know, they're, you know, maybe they are in trouble now. Maybe they, maybe they, they, maybe they shouldn't be as happy as they are because, you know, the Pakistan Taliban and the Afghan Taliban aren't nearly as separate and divergent entities as, as some Pakistani analysts would hope. Uh, You also have ISIS-K potentially benefiting from the instability but it, it does seem that no matter Pakistan fears that spread of terrorism much less than it feared India's um, close economic uh, and diplomatic relationship with Afghanistan uh, and, and one that has now come to a complete end. 
Um, the, the consulates have been evacuated and India is taking in refugees. Uh, a lot of the India educated um, politicians have fled. Um, so, you know, Pakistan, as an analyst, you probably say, OK, they're, they're probably going to receive some blowback. Uh, they're going to see some strengthening of the terror groups who are going to look for the next place to go. Um, you're going to see some issues with border security and, 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 and instability spread. Um, how much influence they're going to have over the new government, the new Taliban government is questionable. I think the Taliban have shown a willingness to uh, rebuff their uh, allies, to lack, for lack of a better word, in the past. Uh, they're likely to do so again because they need them less. They don't need the safe havens anymore. They don't, have, they don't need training camps anymore. They can do them in Afghanistan. So they have a lot less leverage. Pakistan has a lot less leverage uh, than they did. So I think I think that's a, a real question for them, a uh, real challenge for Pakistan. I think Pakistan is hoping that now that the U.S. is out of there, they can reset their relationship with Washington. I think they they will they will they think that they've removed. Uh, they think that the victory of the Taliban and the end of the U.S. military effort has removed this um, sore point in the U.S. Uh, the Washington Islamabad relationship. I don't know if that's true. It might. Um, you'd hear a lot of words of reset. Uh, from Islamabad, you know, some kind of, they're hoping maybe that now that you remove this sore spot, we can focus on other things. What remains to be determined. I think China is an interesting um, question as well. Uh, look, Beijing needs minerals, sure. But I think Beijing loves not having a U.S. military base on its border. I think Beijing loves the humiliation of the United States. Uh, you, you heard them trying to draw links to Taiwan. Um, you, I think Beijing also is willing to deal, we see this in Africa. They're, they have no compunctions about dealing with uh, rogue regimes, uh, repressive regimes. They've gotten the Taliban's acquiescence to not talk about uh, Muslims in China, uh, which is, you know, bizarre and on so many levels that, you know, this kind of arrangement. Um, so I think, you know, they're pretty happy with it. Uh, I, we'll see how close they, they want to get. Um, you know, they, uh, I think they'll probably wait and see a little bit before they rush in with mining companies and but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they tend to be a little cautious, but I don't think there's much downside for Beijing um, in this in this instance. Uh, I think it, it, we didn't talk about it, but some of the other countries in the region have a little bit more of a difficult thing. And Russia and China have long kind of competed over influence in the in the stands, for lack of a better word. So we'll see uh, whether that brings renewed Russia-Chinese um, conflict as they kind of seek to expand their influence in this area. Yeah, that that might be just fine if that happened. Um, all right, let's let's kind of shift again and and away from you know Afghan specific uh, events and and uh, talk about the implications of you know what I think on the best way you could describe the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan is that the pullout did not go according to plan and uh, the U.S. was caught flat footed by the reality on the ground. A, a more critical view would would use a lot more adjectives and be a lot more uh, condemnatory. That's a word of the Biden administration and its decision making process. Uh, but taken taken that uh, the events on the ground, putting them in a in a box, wh- what is uh, how is that <clears throat> affecting uh, the views of the United States around the world? It's a little early, maybe, to be making this determination, but. What do our allies, friends, our rivals, our adversaries, 
how have their views of the United States changed because of August in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I um, particularly, you know, my time in Afghanistan, I, I was mostly attached to a British army unit. Um, so I probably have a disproportionate uh, feedback loop with the British uh, and the UK. Um, and I mean, it, I've, it's shocking to hear uh, America's closest uh, ally uh, be as openly critical. Now, you know, to say that they've never been critical before is not true. Um, but to, to see them be as just from the, you know, chief of the defense staff in the UK, uniformed officer all the way down uh, and across and back and labor and conservative and liberal Democrat. I mean, they just the uniformity of the condemnation is, is just shocking. Um, and again, focus both on the execution, but overall the overall strategic decision. And the, and the again, I think the thing that is most from a allies and partners perspective, this very clear feeling that they were not listened to, that they were ignored, that the requests were ignored, um, whether it was to maintain a stabilization force in Kabul, whether it was to extend the withdrawal deadline. I mean, you see consistently open reports that their requests were denied on this issue. Uh, I think the UK feels it more than anyone because they lost, you know, over 450 new military personnel fighting in Helmand mostly, uh, you know, it's, it's the most, and so feeling a bit of disappointment to say the least, um, but you also seeing it in Germany. Um, but what does this mean strategically? Well, look, it's a kind of a Suez 2.0. I think the UK is having a realization that their ability to act for its own interests is extremely hindered by its close relationship with the United States. Um, and that it has allowed its independent um, military uh, capabilities to, to deteriorate to the point where they just don't have the freedom of action that they probably should have as a, as a global Britain. Um, somebody in Europe are actually pretty excited about this because they think finally their European military project, um, you know, Macron had been talking about, uh, you know, strategic autonomy and, and, and this, so in some ways is upset as they are about Afghanistan, they're actually kind of happy about the shift that, you know, maybe Europe now will, will seek um, an independent um, kind of, foreign policy and national security policy and military capability. Um, whether that comes to pass, I still think there are resource constraints faced by, by European countries that I, I think that will still be difficult, but it, it will complicate things. Um, you know, Asia is interesting because a lot of the hardcore Asia hands have been very dismissive of Afghanistan, of, of this is, means nothing. Ignore this has no impact. And again, it's like, you know, the protest too much kind of thing. It's like, why are you guys so animated about this? Where they keep the denials, uh, you know, Japan experts, Taiwan experts, oh, this has no impact, no impact whatsoever. I, I think, you know, it, it's hard to argue that it won't have any impact. Um, uh, you know, look, it, you don't know until you don't know. I mean, if China makes a move on Taiwan, you know, Again, there's the strategic ambiguity. We don't we don't actually know what will happen. But I do think the question is being asked, which is never a good thing uh, when it comes to credibility. Um, uh, so whether or not I, I do think there is nervousness um, and it, particularly with the ignoring of ally inputs. I think that more than anything, more than the failed execution, um, the scenes of chaos, as powerful as those are, I think for allies, the the reports of a con basically continuity between the Trump administration 
and the Biden administration on the on the on the allied input um, kind of policy. Or, that continuity, I think, is probably going to be the most troubling because I think for folks, it makes them see, okay, there's something to the core. The core has changed, right? There's something there. Now, you could. some have argued it's always been there and allies have deluded themselves as to how much influence they actually have on Washington. I, I take that. There, you, know, there, you can point to cases where that's true. I mean, Grenada, right? You know, the, the, Margaret Thatcher was furious about Grenada and, and Reagan went ahead and did it anyway, right? I mean, you know, it, it, there are... Evident, there's there's always been issues, but um, I, I you know, and then you get to the adversaries, and I think there's nothing but good for them. I, I think the adversaries enjoy the humiliation, uh, the competency humiliation, um, the ally humiliation, um, the the you know damage to reputation. Uh, I think I think the adversaries are are very happy. Um, from the tactical, we talked about you know, China and Russia and Iran even getting benefits, but from just the global standing of the United States and the, and the integrity of the alliances, the adversaries are happy. Now, are they, how happy should they be? Again, I don't think we'll know that answer until another crisis emerges, but uh, I definitely think it's a net positive for them across the board. So uh, back home here in Washington, uh, no surprise, perhaps, uh, Republicans, some of them, have been calling for President Biden to resign. Uh, they've been calling for impeachment. Of course, there have been even more numerous calls for various members of the national security team to be uh, removed and replaced and that kind of thing. Uh, this kind of instant internal political strife in Washington, you know, we saw it for four years under the Trump administration. It was bothersome then it's bothersome now. I don't like it. What's, what's your reaction to this kind of Americans at each other's throats? At yeah. the, you know, and, and not that this is a small issue. This is a big issue. Right. It's something we should be discussing. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be discussed, but this kind of immediately going to the partisan corners and calling for the other person to be eliminated thing. What's your, what's your reaction to that? I mean, I think it's damaging to the United States in the long term, right? The, the politics stop at the water's edge thing has become a bit trite in Washington, but it serves a purpose, which is that when you're facing adversaries, when you're dealing with these challenges, that they know that there aren't internal divisions that, you know, they can try to manipulate, you know, it, it does serve a strategic purpose. Um, and it's disheartening to see folks particularly, I mean, I find it galling to see per people who were basically in love with that policy uh, when it was done with an R next to its name, then become its biggest opponents when it's done with a D next to its name. I, I just think that really just shows a total lack of um, shame, shame and, and, and just lack of awareness. Um, so uh but like you said, I think we've kind of come to expect that it. it's not new. Uh, we saw it in the Trump administration, although I would say there were Republicans during the Trump administration who criticized him on Syria and Afghanistan and, 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 and actually risked, um, you know, risked them. It took a risk. And I think you're seeing some Democrats criticize President Biden as well for the execution of this. So I do think you are seeing a, a kind of bipartisan consensus that is ignoring the trench warfare of partisanship and focusing on what are the positives and minuses of the policy. But, you know, you go even way back to Benghazi. Right? I mean, what a, a, you think of how that was handled on a partisan basis. So it's not terror. It's depressing, but it's not terribly new. 
last question. Having said all of that, uh, it does seem like there are uh, some challenges within the the Biden administration national security decision making personnel and process. What kind of changes, if any, should be made? Should we replace a cabinet member or two, a senior advisor? What what do you think needs to change to get the administration to a better place in its ability to make these decisions in a way that's best for the country? It's a great question. Um, so I don't think anyone's going to lose their job over this, uh, which I, I don't think is a good thing um, because it, it, I think accountability is important in government. Um, uh, but the fact is that as soon as you remove someone from their position, you are admitting that you did something wrong. And I, and I think to our earlier point about the intense partisan atmosphere uh, and the fear of political um, damage, I don't think this administration will sack anyone over this because it will be seen as a tacit admission that they are responsible for it and guilty for it while their running line has been, this was unavoidable. This was always going to be a disaster. We just happened to be at the helm. We were, we were going to hit that iceberg. We just happened to be on duty uh, when you know the ship hit it. Um, I don't believe it. But uh, that's their line and they're sticking with it. In terms of approving the process, look, I, I, I don't know this to be true, um, but it seems like uh, the president has people who have been with him for a very long time uh, that he trusts uh, and that he relies on heavily. And he has people who are newcomers. Um, and I think from the open source reporting, those who were dissenting typically came from the newcomer camp. And those who were supportive kind of came from his, you know, longtime aides at camp. So in terms of, you know, how do you bring in dissenting voices and give them more authority? Um, I do think that would he would benefit. Uh, I do think this administration would probably benefit from more of a diverse um, set of opinions, but also a diverse set of opinions that carry equal weight. And uh, how do you engineer that? Um, tough. Uh, particularly with a president who values loyalty and, and long service. So I, it's going to be a hard thing for them to do. Um, maybe you consult more with Congress. Maybe you appoint some kind of special advisors from outside um, who have who have a certain amount of gravitas. But it, it will be, I think, kind of reforming that with this administration from what we know so far will be a, will be a challenge. Ryan, we'll leave it at that. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. For more of what Ryan has to say on Afghanistan, be sure to listen to episode 94 of Fault Lines. That was last week where he joined our panel of hosts for a group discussion. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Please join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 